0: The title for this morning's talk is Craving for Ownership. Yesterday's talk highlighted our tendency to orchestrate our lives in ways that would bring about predictable outcomes. And as I said then, This tendency has not so much to do with the outcomes themselves, but with the fact that their predictability gives us a sense of security. Today's talk can be seen as a companion piece for yesterday's. Not that you need to have heard it yesterday's it to follow today's, but it connects. I will ask, how do we usually procure the clout, the leverage to secure predictability? And I will argue that to a large extent we procure, procure this clout through ownership. Having secured our, call it, territory through ownership, legal or implicit, we feel that all things and beings within that territory are part of our patrimony. And hence, we can do with them as we please in order to procure a predictable outcome. Problem is that in doing so we end up tend to more often than not end up generating more anxiety and suffering. I look into this problem first and then I'll consider other ways to go about life. One of the obvious manifestations of this ownership ordeal is the proliferation of the possessive pronoun, possessive particle, perhaps, my. True. Of course, my can also relate to a, refer to a relationship that's not uh, possessive but simply a referential. like uh, if I say my sore throat, I don't want to own my throat, throat sore throat. <coughs> but basically my tends to carry implications <coughs> On, on, of ownership, and as such is heavily charged. Take the expression my home and its implication. It implies not only the space of my home, the space that I can enjoy, it also implies my castle, a fortress to defend against potential intruders <clears throat> and as somebody put it furthermore as somebody put it quite clear in one of our wednesday sessions in my home it's me who sets the rules Why this tendency? Why are we so infatuated with ownership? Clearly, it all has to do not so much with the object we own, but with ownership itself. It all has to do with the fact that (coughs) ownership creates the owner, the me who owns And it would seem that for the ordinary person, enhancing the owner, enhancing the clinger who clings, is what life is all about. Even to the point that the harder the process of getting... the stronger the boost to the creation of me. Always look around. How much more expensive are things that are scarce? In fact, how often we fabricate an artificial, I mean, manufacturers or people in business, manufacture an artificial scarcity in order to boost the prices of things. and therefore boost the power of the creation of me. Okay, so how do we come to own things? How do we acquire them? We could, of course, make them from scratch. Our son, Michael's and my son, He's a very skillful carpenter, among many other things. And he's made an, a number of pieces of furniture for us in our home. Of course, he bought the raw materials. Fair enough. But, but in fact, the most common way of getting things is by buying them, by exchanging them for money. True, we could steal them, Um, but in the end, the stealing is questionably rewarded. After all, for the robber, after all, the robber is likely to have some pangs of consciousness at some time, in some corner of his or her mind. In the case of land surely the standard way of acquiring it is by buying it. However, that was not so when the early European settlers occupied this land both North and South America taking it away from the natives. But that massive robbery has been Thoroughly wiped away from our collective consciousness. So that when we buy land nowadays, as when Raquel and me bought our current property, it doesn't even occur to us that we are buying stolen property. <coughs> After all, the rules in place insist that the land is ours. We even have a piece of paper, you know, a title to prove it and should have brought it in. I'm sorry. <laughs> to convince you. And how about territories that remain unclaimed? Say an island that may pop up in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, as they do occasionally. The rule seems to be that it belongs to whoever sets foot on it First, or that it's part, part of the nation that first hoists its flag on it. Unless, of course, another nation with a more powerful navy and air force decides to enter the contest. Then you get it. <coughs> the same sort of thing is bound to eventually happen in outer space. But for the time being, our consideration of ownership in space will have to be confined to a fairy tale. This is a fairy tale. I know about five, six years ago I shared this with you too, but I, I cannot resist it. It's a, <laughs> it's a story of the little prince, Le Petit Prince, by a French. Uh, Man called Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. This a, pri- pri- uh, a little guy, a young guy, prince. Forget it. I mean, he, he lives in an asteroid all by himself. So he's a prince and he's a <laughs> everybody else in that asteroid. And he decides to take a trip through space. So jumps to other asteroids or planets around him. Meets people. And this particular asteroid, he meets the only inhabitant, in fact, too. A businessman. And here's the story. I'll read from the text. So apparently he goes to, through three planets and then he goes to this one. The fourth planet belonged to a businessman. This man was so much occupied that he did not even raise his head at the little prince's arrival. Good morning, the little prince said to him. Your cigarette has gone out. (laughs) Three and two make five. Five and seven make twelve. Twelve and three make... 15, good morning. 15 and 7 make 25, 22 and 6 make 28. I haven't had time to light again. 26 and 5 make 33. Foo, phew! That then makes 501,622,731. 500 million? What? said the uh, same um, prince. Hey, are you still there? Five hundred and one million, I can't stop. I have so much to do, I'm concerned with matters of consequence. I don't amuse myself with balderdash. Two and five make seven... 501 million, what? repeated the little prince who never in his life had let go of a question once he had asked (laughs) the business soon suddenly realized that there was no hope of being left in peace until he answered the questions millions of those little objects which one sometimes sees in the sky flies Oh no, Little glittering objects. Bees? Oh no. Little golden objects that set lazy men to idle dream. Dreaming. As for me, I'm concerned with matters of consequence. There is no time for idle dreaming in my life. Ah, you mean the stars? Yes, that's, that's it. The stars. And what do you do with these stars? What do I do with them? Yes. Nothing. I own them. You own the stars? Yes. But I have already seen a king who... Kings don't own. They reign over. It's a very different matter. And what good does do to you own the stars? It, makes me, it does me the good of making me rich. And what good does it do to be rich? It makes it possible for me to buy more stars, if any are discovered. How is it possible for one to own the stars? To whom do they belong to? I don't know. To nobody. Then they belong to me, because I was the first person to think of it. (laughs) I own the stars the stars because nobody ever before me thought of owning them. Yes, that's true. And what do you do with them? I administer them. I count them and recount them. It is difficult. I am a man who is naturally interested in matters of consequence. The little prince was not satisfied. If I owned a little scarf, a silk scarf, I could put it around my neck and take it away with me. If I owned a flower, I could pluck that flower and take it away with me. But you cannot pluck the stars from heaven? No, but I can put them in the bank. <laughs> Whatever that does that mean? it means it means that I write the number of my stars on a little piece of paper. Then I put the paper in a drawer and lock it with a key. <laughs> and that's all. That's enough. It's entertaining, thought the little prince, but rather poetic. I would say pathetic. (laughs) But it's of no great consequence. On matters of consequence, the little prince had ideas that were very different from those of the grown-ups. I myself own a flower, he continued his conversation which I water every day. I own three volcanoes, which I clean out every week. It is of some use to my volcanoes, and it's some, of some use to my flower, that I own them. But, are you, but you are of no use to the stars. The businessman opened his mouth, but he could find nothing to say in answer. And the little prince went away. So, so much for ownership, at least in space. In the real world, I I, I must say, I haven't seen anybody behaving like that businessman laying the sights on an asteroid and laying a claim on an asteroid that they discovered. But the way our system is going, our legal system is going, and given that the exploration of outer space has become the purview of corporation, I would not be surprised if some corporate body ends up pointing at some asteroid in space... And claiming that they own it because they saw it first by using a new technique of observation. Then whatever they do with that, I don't know. But perhaps they do will do likewise in subatomic space. Of course they could not hoist a corporate flag on an electron or a quark. There are zillions of them. But they could patent a procedure for identifying some kind of particle, and then appropriating it, using it to make profit. I'm sure we won't have to wait long for that. But it's not just a matter of money, you know. Now that corporations have been granted personhood by the Supreme Court, they're also legally entitled to an ego. Right? So, they will be pleased. I own that asteroid over there. It goes beyond economics. And so they, they will get to own whatever they can get the, lay their hands on, including genes. Indeed, there's a determined effort by corporation towards the commodification. That's the word, commodification of genes. <coughs> Meaning, turning genes into commodities. True, by the laws of the land, So far, genes themselves are not patentable, but certainly the procedures for identifying them, altering them, or transplanting them can be patented, and they are being patented galore. Monsanto Corporation has been reaping huge benefit from selling seeds with transplanted genes, which they are patented in fact, farmers are not even allowed to get seeds. I mean, they don't produce seeds, but occasionally they do. And if the farmers plant those seeds, they go to jail. Or whatever, they are sued. Much the same ha- is happening in the field of medicine. As you may have read, uh, last month there was all uh, this hula in the papers about Angelina Julie, um she tested positive for a gene that meant that she had a, a risk of one in four hundred, relatively high, of developing breast cancer, and so she underwent preventive test, test mastectomy. Fair enough, but. The scandal is the cost of the test. Well, for ordinary people, it's $4,000, just to point out a very slight increase in risk. And, And, of course, the price is totally disproportionate to the cost, actual cost, of performing a test, which is just two or three dollars but they have the patent and of course what goes for genes also goes for cell cultures we simply anybody can patent uh, cell culture it's mine I own it Uh, by patenting the procedure used for that On this topic, let me share a story of a great friend of mine. He died roughly ten years ago. We were students at the... We were freshmen at the University of Buenos Aires some 70 years ago, together in the same class, and also very good friends in many levels. And we had our scientific careers quite similar, somehow. I came here, he came to England, we both went back to Buenos Aires, we had our careers there and then he came to Cambridge and I came here. Cambridge Cambridge University in England, I meant. Um, There, he developed a revolutionary procedure for making pure antibodies. See, cell cultures can make antibodies, but until Cesar came along, there were a mixture of antibodies, and nobody... I mean, a mixture of tens of thousands of antibodies in the same culture. He developed a procedure for making... Pure antibodies, which is technically called monoclonal antibodies, using cell cultures. And for this technique, he received the Nobel Prize in 1984. I feel great emotion saying that. In the 90s, I visited Cesar and his wife, Celia, also fellow biochemist in Cambridge. And what they told me is quite extraordinary. Apparently, Cambridge University got absolutely furious with him because he had published his results without patenting them. Once something becomes part of a public domain, you cannot patent it. And, and, and they, they, they are furious. The hierarchy of the university, the administrators of the university. Uh, of course, the university could have, Cesar would have profited, and the university would have profited from the patent. Cesar told me that would have been inconceivable for him. Mm-hmm. It would have gone, run against the grain of his whole life as a scientist. So the university hierarchy seeing it all differently, but they were unable to punish him because you cannot punish it a Nobel laureate (laughs) for for being selfless. (laughs) But it wasn't so funny because they chose to punish his wife. Suddenly she found herself out of a job with the slightest excuse. An excuse that was totally invalid as they both and, and it was very humiliating for her because once again it's not about money it's her career it's her research project it's what, what she's uh, got involved with anyway that's the story But I think César is a brilliant example of not being uh, controlled by the desperation for ownership. In sum, our lives seem to be organized on the assumption that the main, if, if not the only way to relate to life, is through ownerships. Ownership of things, of territory, of patents. There are exceptions, as in the case of Cecil Milstein, but as a rule, ownership has become the core of our relationship to life. For many of us, most of us. This is the way to live, to live. Certainly, this is not the way to live if we want to put an end to suffering, to our own suffering and to the suffering of others as well. To make room for that, the end of suffering, Our relationship to the world needs to be based on love and connectivity, not on ownership and alienation. And love and connectivity thrive in a world that's fluid and integrated, not in a world that's fractured into confined entities resulting from appropriation (coughs) so how do we engage in this path of love we start by learning to love ourselves and here I don't mean our in the possessive sense just to, to make a reference ourselves this being for each one of us. <coughs> including in the included in this being are all its manifestations, a whole spectrum of manifestations, including the difficult parts and the easy parts, of course, including the inner child. I can't can resist here mentioning Linda Montano who's in this room who a few days ago sent uh, both Raquel and me uh, um, through the into our computer through email um, a video that she has made and, uh, which shows such different parts of One self, I don't know if it's herself, but she's hacking them out. (laughs) There seems to be no connection. We are many, of course. By connecting with our inner being as we can in the course of meditation, we connect not only with various aspects of ourselves, but also with the space into which it all unfolds much as when, when deeply listening to sounds we connect not just with the sounds but with the space of silence where they emerge from. In all of this, we put aside the expectation of any specific outcomes <coughs> Welcoming instead the endless possibilities of life's unfolding. And these endless possibilities, in a world that has not been fragmented into mine and yours, me and you, us and them, includes inputs from all of those we come in contact. We allow ourselves to be emotionally touched by others. At times while in conversation, is it not true that we find ourselves completing each other's sentences when we, we really connect? Or during the, an inquiry session as we'll have in the afternoon, Maybe what we others say reverberates so deeply inside us that really has something to do with a part of of us. And as we deepen our connection with fellow be- fellow human beings in body, heart and mind, it becomes clear that the, continu- that the continu- continuum we belong to is not limited to the human species. It extends, for instance, to our pets, and for sure. It's pretty obvious. We practice that often enough. But the continuum of, of connectivity is not limited by ownership, nor even is it limited to the animal kingdom. As we tune into the world more and more, we start picking reverberations from all that surrounds us. And we come to realize that our relentless fragmentation of the world and the appropriation of its fragments that follows is just the misguided habit, the wrong-headed attitude that serves no true purpose. Let me illustrate it. I mean, I'm sure you can think of many examples. i just offer you one, one that was brought up by Raquel at one of our Wednesday sessions in our our home, where every Wednesday we have a meditation group meeting. It concerns the stone sculptures that she has installed in various, various locations along the Hudson River. Their location is such that when the tide rises... They get totally covered. When the tide recedes, they are exposed. In the process, the sculptures are bound to decay. The currents of the river will take some rocks away and things like that. Or or sometimes somebody comes along and removes the stones. That happens too. Deeply inside Raquel, as she shared with us, there's an acknowledgement of the inevitability of this process, of the ageing and death of her work. Not different from our own ageing and death. And at the same time, this acceptance of Raquel goes hand hand in hand with her profound love and sense of intimacy towards her work. There's no indifference there at all. Love, in truth, is being fully present with what is. Joanna Macy, um, author, whatever, teacher, puts this very perceptively in a passage of her book, The World as Lover, World as Self. She writes, Our mission is not to escape from our world or to fix things by remote control, looking at charge and pushing buttons, buttons and pulling levers, but to fall in love with our world. We are made for that because we co-arise with her in a dance where we discover ourselves and lose ourselves over and over again. We build community, loneliness, is one of the great sufferings of our time. We acknowledge that and recognize the need to take charge of our lives together to manifest our interdependence in visible, palpable ways. We have to risk trusting each other and build each other into each other's lives in new ways, allowing structures to arise by which we live together, work together, play and pray together. Greed and fear are very isolating. They make us crazy. We have to see through them and refuse to be pitted against each other. Only through all beings and with all beings can we awaken to our peace and joy. Our daily adventure is to realize that. The Dharma wheel, as it turns now, also tells us this that we don't have to invent or construct our connection, they already exist. We already are indissolubly and we already and indissoluble belong to each other, for that is the nature of life. Indeed indeed. Let me conclude by sharing with you a brief poem by Mary Oliver which addresses a gist of what I've been trying to say. It's entitled Poem of the One World. This morning the beautiful white Heron was floating along above the water. And then into the sky of this one world we all belong to, where everything, sooner or later, is a part of everything else. And so, let's sit in silence for a couple of minutes, opening to that feeling, if it comes our way, of course, the feeling that we are part of everything.